So how do you live in the gap between promise and reality? How do you live in the gap between when a promise is extended and then the the waiting that comes for the fulfillment of that promise? You see, when someone uh, extends a promise to you, whatever it may be, uh, it creates the possibility of something that didn't exist before. Right Before the promise, there was no expectation, no longing for some trajectory of fulfillment. But the moment someone says, I promise you, it creates something. There's this longing that now I'm waiting for the fulfillment of that promise. And inevitably, when there's a promise extended, there's a gap between the promise extended and the reality fulfilled. So this summer, our family is planning to take a road trip for a few days to rest and create memories as a family. And we've talked to our kids that, hey, this summer we're going to do that. And the moment we created that promise inevitably has come, hey, when is that happening? Is that happening this week? When is it going to happen? When are we going to go on that trip? And also, inevitably, once we pack up the car and get in, When we pull out of Oak Hill Road, we won't even get to the highway yet when that famous road trip question is going to come. We all know what it is, right? Are we there yet? Right? See, there's this promise extended of days at the beach, a change of scenery, fun and food, and yet there's a gap between promise and reality. And all of us, whether we're children or adults, in the waiting, in the in-between, we wrestle. And I think it's because from an early age, we begin to see time as one of our most precious, valuable, and scarcest resources. Jason Farman, he's a professor at Maryland University. He's the author of a book called Delayed Response, The Art of Waiting from the Ancient to the Instant World. He's, he spent his whole research career looking at how people wait for things. And he gives us some insight. He says, when we imagine time, and that time being used wisely, time being used well, waiting is contrary to all of that. See, if you make me wait, you're limiting my ability to be successful in this life. And when other people control our time, it makes us feel powerless. We don't feel in control. And that sense of powerlessness and lack of control drives our hatred of waiting. I've never met the person who said, you know what? I love waiting. When I see a long line, I get excited. I'm so pumped about it. Never. None of us like to wait. Patience is not usually high up on our list. Think of our current moment in history, right? Everyone is now waiting for the end of the COVID-19 pandemic. This hope, this longing and promise of returning to normalcy. A life without masks, meeting without restrictions, simply just being able to greet friends and acquaintances with a simple handshake or an embrace of a hug without all of the awkwardness of these new social norms. See, in the gap between promise and reality, we have expectations to manage. There's a longing that comes from hope deferred. There's a waiting that reminds us that we're not as powerful and we're not as in control as we'd like to imagine. So how do we live in the gap between promise and reality? 
Well, in Genesis 15, that's where we find Abram. Abram is in the gap. He's been given these incredible promises by God. If you remember in Genesis 12, he's been promised land. He's been promised seed. Remember, he's childless. He's he's been promised that he will have a child. He's been promised blessing. But since the extension of that promise, it's been 10 years, almost a decade. And none of his circumstances have changed. He remains a childless nomad. And there's been no movement on seeing that gap closed between promise and reality. And it's into this gap that God and Abram have a conversation. Into the fear, into the doubt, into this feeling of disappointment, God speaks. See, Genesis 15 is one of those pivotal chapters in the Bible. The rest of the Bible will keep looking back to Genesis 15. Genesis 15 will be quoted often throughout the rest of the Bible. Imagine a puzzle. Some pieces are kind of insignificant. You can tell what what the picture is without certain pieces. But Genesis 15 is one of those pieces of the puzzle without which the whole canvas doesn't make any sense. And not only is it a pivotal chapter, this chapter is also going to help us to learn how to live in the gap between promise and reality. We're going to find Genesis 15 breaks into two parts. First, we'll see... This is our point number one, that faith endures the gap between promise and reality. If you want to live between the gap of promise and reality, you have to have faith. And it's in that gap that faith will sustain us and enable us to endure. And then second, in the last half of the chapter, we'll see it's, it's covenant that bridges the gap between promise and and reality. Faith enables us to endure, but it's covenant that bridges that gap between promise and reality. God has a plan to bridge the gap between his promises extended and our experience and enjoyment of those promises. So let's begin together in verse 1 to see how faith endures the gap between promise and reality. Let's look at verse 1 together. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. As the chapter opens up, we learn that some time has passed. We don't know exactly how long, but it's been probably about a decade. But regardless, enough time has passed for Abraham to start uh, wrestling with fear and doubt. And we know this because the Lord comes to Abram, and what does he say? He says, fear not, You see, God knows our hearts. You can't hide from God. He knows everything. He doesn't presume anything. He doesn't assume anything. God never guesses. God knows always everything all the time. So he knows that Abram is wrestling with fear and doubt. In fact, in the next few verses, Abram's going to open up about his doubts. He's going to open up about the fears that are kind of consuming his heart concerning the promises of the Lord. But before we get into those doubts and fears, I want us to see the compassion of God to initiate this conversation with Abram. He could have said, Abram, you know, you're wrestling with fear and doubt. I'm moving on from you. I've given you these promises. I'm the God of all creation. Why can't you just believe You're sitting there in doubt and I'm moving on. I'll find some other person who will believe me truly, perfectly, and fully. 
But God reveals that he is the God who knows. Fear not, Abram. But he's also the God who can be known. And he reveals himself. He comes to Abram and says, fear not. In fact, fear not or do not fear, some variation of those words. Did you know it's the most repeated command in the Bible? Most of the time when God is issuing a command in the Bible, he says, fear not. Why does he do that? It happens over 350 times in the Bible. It's because God knows our frame. He knows our frailty. He knows our weakness. He knows that we don't know everything. He knows that we're prone to wander, prone to fear, prone to doubt, that anxiety tends to cripple us. But instead of leaving us to drown in those fears, instead of rejecting us because of those fears, what does God do? He draws near. He doesn't reject us, but he embraces us. God doesn't leave Abram in this moment with empty platitudes. He doesn't give him arbitrary commands. He tells Abram to fear not and he gives him every reason to believe and obey that command. And he tells them, I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. Another way to translate this verse is to say, fear not, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. You see, what God is saying, Abram, there's no reason to fear because I am for you and I am with you. See, if God is for you and God is with you, then there is no reason to fear. And I know our, sometimes the truth of the matter and the feelings of the matter are at odds. We might feel the fear even though we know there's nothing to fear. I, I think about these moments when I'm called into the middle of the night to a waking child who's scared in their bed. They think there's something in the room. And I know there's nothing in the room, right? And I can tell them, hey, there is nothing in this room except maybe your little brother. And that gurgling noise you hear, that's just the water coming in to the pipes. And I try to bring the truth of the matter to the situation to alleviate the fears. But it's usually not just the spoken words that matter. It's the presence. It's the nearness. It's the I am here. I am with you. Daddy is here. I am for you and I am with you that calms the fear. God says, Abram, I am here. I am for you. I am with you. There is no enemy that could come that is greater than me as your shield. And there is no reward coming greater than myself. Verse 2. Abram said, O Lord, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. We start to see some of these fears and doubts. Abram's heart is wrestling and he opens up to God about his doubts and fears. You see, Abram has been walking by faith. Over the last few years, he's matured, he's grown in his faith. We, we see that chapters 13 and 14, Abram has uh, returned to Canaan after his episode in Egypt. We see him repenting from leaving the land. 
Uh, uh, he's repenting from trusting in Egypt instead of the provision of God. We see Abram by faith go and rescue his nephew Lot against a much larger and more powerful army. And after military victory, by faith, Abram resisted the temptation to just take the land ahead of God's timing through a wicked alliance with the king of Sodom. So we see him growing in his faith. We see him leaving the uh, the land of Ur of the Chaldeans initially when God gives him the promise. Abram is a man of faith, and yet, as is usually the case, it's a faith that's mixed with doubt. It's mixed with fear. See, Abram is looking around, a decade has passed, and the promises of God seem impossible. He's just looking around and saying, listen, Sarai's not getting any younger. I'm not getting any younger. And this land is filled with Canaanites. There's no way we can take them all. And the gap between promise and fulfillment seems like a chasm that cannot be bridged. He's a childless nomad without a proper heir, or even the smallest plot of land to call his own. For Abram, things look bleak. He and Sarai are getting older. Abram's in his 80s, Sarai's in her 70s. There doesn't seem like a way they can take the land. And so Abram opens up to God about his doubts. He lays them out plainly. And I think this is a good application for us. We can bring our doubts and fears to God. I would say it's wise to be honest and plain. Why? Well, for starters, he already knows. Remember, it's God who comes to Abram and says, fear not. He knows our hearts. There is nothing that you could ever in prayer share with God that he doesn't already know. He already knows. He knows. Did you notice God didn't chastise Abram for his doubts? When Abram shared his doubts, he didn't say, what are you doing? How could you believe that? No. God sees that his doubts are grounded by faith. In Hebrews chapter 11, 1, we get a good definition of faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. But I want to tell you this. Assurance and conviction doesn't mean you never have doubts. You can be assured of things, even convicted of things, and still have some doubts. But faith is ultimately believing God and his word over and above what you see and think to be true. Often we'll wrestle with doubts as we process what our eyes and our hearts believe. And this is what we as a church call faith-seeking understanding. Faith that seeks understanding. Faith is not never having doubts. Faith is never, it doesn't mean that you never falter. Faith is in the midst of those things, seeking understanding. Abram believes God, yet he just can't figure out how these incredible and seemingly impossible things will come to pass. And because God knows his heart and because he begins from a place of faith, his doubts and his questions lead him to the Lord. Faith-seeking understanding is different than unbelief that seeks validation. If you're taking notes, those are two good phrases to write down. Faith-seeking understanding is different than unbelief-seeking validation. 
Unbelief that seeks validation is a kind of doubt that's grounded not in faith, but in unbelief, in disbelief. And ultimately, it becomes a hardened cynicism that looks for reasons to remain in unbelief. So as, uh, when, when you begin from that place, when you look at all the evidence, you use it to confirm your suspicions. You use it to confirm that this cannot be the case. See, Abram is different. He's looking to God for reasons to believe, not reasons to disbelieve. You ever had a conversation with someone who just seems hardened and bent on disbelief? It doesn't matter what you say, everything you say, all the evidence that's there, they either disregard it altogether or they take what you're saying and they twist it around just to stay settled, heels dug in to their skepticism and un belief and it almost feels like what's the point of the conversation right there's faith that seeks understanding and then there's unbelief that seeks validation abram's circumstances and his eyes see impossibility so by faith abram brings these doubts to god and what does god do in his kindness he brings assurance to those doubts it reminds me of that, that story in Mark chapter 9 with the father whose son is needing healing and he's begging Jesus. He's at the feet of Jesus begging for his son. And Jesus tells him that healing is possible if he would believe. And the father cries out those famous words, I believe, help my unbelief. You see that? The father's saying, I, I do have faith. I do believe, but mixed up in all of that is still some unbelief, but I want your help. That's faith seeking understanding. It's imperfect faith trying to work out the doubts. Abram reminds us that promises long delayed are hard to believe. At the same time, Abram encourages us to continue to believe despite the apparent disparity between promise and reality. Faith sustains and enables us to endure the gap between promise and reality. But not only that, when we bring our doubts to him, God reminds us and assures us that we can trust him. Look at what God says next to him in verses four and five. Behold, the word of the Lord came to Abram. This man, Eliezer, shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside. God brought Abram outside and said, look toward heaven. Number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said, so shall your offspring be. Verse 7. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Do you notice what happened? God takes Abram on a walk at night. And he shows him the sky and the stars. I mean, just imagine what Abram saw as he looked up at the night sky without the hindrance of the city lights and buildings, just an open expanse of endless stars. And this is for free. If you've never got out into the open, away from the city lights to look up at the night sky, you need to do it at least once in your lifetime. It will take your very breath away. What's the implication as he brings him out here? Well, Isaiah 40, 26 says this, lift up your eyes on high and see who created these, the stars, who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, because he is strong in power, not 
one is missing. Jeremiah 32, 17. Oh Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Friends, look at this. Nothing is too hard for you. You see what God is doing as he's coming alongside Abram to reassure him? He's saying, look, if I can create every star and if I can just put them in all the right spots, I can count them. I know every one of their names. I can number them all. Then nothing is too hard for me. That means putting life inside Sarai's womb, giving you this land to possess, none of that is too hard for me. God tells Abram, not only will you have an heir, but it will be a son. And there is going to come a time in history when your descendants will number these stars. And God will count and number and know every single one of Abram's descendants. They will have a place to call upon the Lord in the promised land. See, Abram brings his doubts to God and God brings assurance that, to Abram that he will fulfill his promise in his timing. See, Abram, to him, it feels like time is running out. Feels like his life is approaching the end. It feels like he will have nothing to show for leaving everything behind to follow God. And God says, you got to put your feelings underneath the truth of my word. See, God sees and knows the entire course of human history. He leaves nothing up to chance and his plan will come perfectly to reality now look at verse six i skipped it earlier because it's one of the most important verses in this chapter and i want to make sure we don't miss it verse six says and he believed abram believed the lord and he counted it to him as righteousness now what moses is doing here is he's reminding us that in the midst of abram's doubts in the midst of his fears there's an abiding faith in God. Now, what I, what I want you to know is that this isn't the beginning of faith for Abram. We've already looked at that, right? In chapter 12, he leaves Ur of the Chaldeans based on faith. Chapter 13 and 14, he's living out his faith as, uh, 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 with the different things that God calls him to do. And Moses is reminding us, hey, don't forget, Abram is a man of faith. And if anything, as we spend our time looking at Abram, Abram's life is faith illustrated. We see the good, the bad, the ugly of a life of faith. This wasn't the first moment he believed. When Abram left Ur of the Chaldeans, he did so with nothing but the promises of God in his hand. He did so by faith, and he's been walking by faith ever since. Has it been a perfect faith? Goodness, no. It's a faith mixed with doubt. It's a faith that falters. It's a faith that fails. But at the same time, it's a faith that is growing and maturing as he continues to repent and hold fast to the words of God. And what I love about the life of Abram is that his faith isn't perfect. And what it says to me is that I don't have to have perfect faith either. Friends, perfect faith is not God's requirements. How do we know that? Because verse 6 tells us that Abram's faith, as imperfect as it was, was what? 
counted to him as righteousness. It doesn't say that Abram's perfect faith was counted as righteousness. It's Abram's faith as it was. And what have we seen about his faith? Is that it was imperfect. It's in progress. It's a faith mixed with unbelief. It's a faith mixed with doubt. And yet his faith, imperfect as it was, was counted and credited and valued to Abram as righteousness. Praise be to the name of the Lord. What does that mean? John Piper helpfully explains Abram found grace in the eyes of the Lord through faith alone. God drew him to faith. God counted that faith as righteousness, as a right standing with God. Abram became right with God, acquitted, forgiven, accepted, justified by faith alone apart from works. So here's how it works. Our sin makes us unrighteous or unright with God. And that separation, that disconnection with God leads us to guilt and shame and fear. And ultimately, the Bible says sin ends in death. It's a curse that ultimately ends in death. So in order to get right with God, we have to become righteous. But if you're like me, you go, well, hold on, there's a problem. I'm not righteous. No one is righteous. Nothing we do earns favor or righteousness with God. But because God is a God who is full of mercy and forgiveness, he provides a way for unrighteous sinners like you and me to find righteousness and favor with God. And it's by God's grace through faith. That's the message of the Bible. Abram's faith in the Lord is valued. It's credited to him as righteousness. And this is the kind of faith that enables us to believe despite what our circumstances tell us. D.A. Carson is helpful here. He says, Abram's faith is simple and profound. He believed God's promises, taking God at his word. And that faith in God's eyes was credited as righteousness. This doesn't mean that Abram earned brownie points for deploying such a righteous faith. Rather, the idea is that what God demands of his image bearers What he has always demanded is righteousness. But in this sinful race, of which you and I are a part, what he accepts, crediting it as righteousness, is faith. Faith that acknowledges our dependence upon God and takes God at his word. This faith of Abram is what makes him the father of those who believe. The men have been studying Galatians chapter 3 together. We see Paul write, just as Abram believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that as those of faith who are sons of Abram and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abram saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, listen guys, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abram, the man of faith. This is the gospel that by God's grace, through faith, we all become partakers of the promise of Abraham. Listen, we become the children of Abraham, descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky by faith. 
So when God took Abram on that walk at night and showed him the vastness of the stars, he wasn't saying, Abram, you are going to have uh, biological children as numerous as the stars in the heaven. What he was saying is there's coming a day when you will have spiritual children, those who believe by faith as numerous as the stars in the heavens. And the promises of God have come true. Billions and billions of people throughout time, across geography, have said, I believe. And in doing so, have become children of Abraham, descendants like the stars in the heavens, whom God knows each one by name. Despite what his eyes could see, Abram believed the Lord, and that faith enabled him to endure the gap between promise and reality. Christian, like Abram, we stand in the gap between the promises of God and our current reality. One thing I love about the Old Testament is that every time I read through it, I look at these men and these women and go, we are just like them. They're no different from us. See, as a Christian, aren't we promised a redeemed world where there's no more pain, no more suffering, no more injustice? That's a promise that God has given us. And yet, Are we experiencing and living in that promise right now? No, there's a gap. We're promised a fully redeemed life where the presence of sin is completely erased because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And yet what? There is a gap. We are not experiencing that problem, that promise in its fullness. And Abram's life speaks to ours. Christians, do not lose heart. Though doubt may creep in, fear may cause you to lose sight of Christ, bring those doubts and fears to the Lord. Let him in that intimacy of prayer, let him in that intimacy of of, of, of relationship assure you and remind you that he is faithful to his word. This faith anchors us to Christ and enables us to endure the gap between the promise and reality. Now let's look at the last verses to see how covenant bridges that gap between covenant, a promise and reality. The text goes on in verse 8 and says, But he said, this is Abram, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? After God reassures Abram of his promises, Abram asks the Lord for a sign. Something that will further embolden his faith. It's, it's Abram's version of, Lord, I believe but help my unbelief. I believe, but, but I still have that unbelief. So can you help me? And this is God's response, verse nine. He said to him, bring me a heifer. That's a cow, by the way. A heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought all these to him. He cut them in half and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now, if you're like me, at first glance, this just seems weird. Abram came to God. He said, listen, I, I believe, help my unbelief. I need some help. And God says, bring me a bunch of animals, cut them in half, and lay them on each side. And you're thinking, I'm not fully assured. <laughs> this is weird, right? Abram asked for assurance. God says, get some animals, cut them in half. But... In the ancient Near East, this is a common practice called covenant. If you're taking notes, write that down. Covenant. 
See, entering into a covenant was a way to formalize agreements between two parties. So, for example, a king might come into a land and enter into a covenant with his subjects. So in exchange for protection um, from the surrounding nations, in exchange for stability, the subjects would pledge their allegiance to this king and their loyalty to him. And typically the covenant was formalized through this ceremony, this covenant-cutting Ceremony, cutting these animals in half. So here's what they do. They would take these animals, they'd cut them in half, and they'd put some on one side, and they'd put some on the other, and it would create this aisle between the animal carcasses. And so what was, what was happening is he's saying, look, for loyalty, the king will do to your enemies what we've done to these animals. If you are loyal to me, anyone who comes against you will be made like these animals. However, If you're disloyal to me, if you are treasonous, if you abandon me, then you will become like these animals. And then the subjects would walk down this aisle of death signifying we understand the terms of this agreement and we pledge our allegiance to you. May it be done to me as it has been done to these animals if I reject you. Do you see the visual display of this covenant-cutting ceremony? This aisle becomes the symbolic aisle of death, a curse awaiting any who breaks the covenant. Let me say it this way. As Abram had been doing this and getting everything ready, let's say a passerby had come by and had seen Abram gathering the animals, cutting them in half, laying them down. They wouldn't have said, what on earth is this man doing? Let's call PETA. No, no, no. They would have said, hey, there's a guy who's about to enter into a covenant. He's getting the covenant ceremony ready. They would have known exactly what he was doing. They wouldn't have thought it strange. They would have known this is a guy entering into covenant. It's like when you sign a contract. It's not some random assortment of papers with arbitrary ink on it, is it? No, The ink and the papers outline terms of agreement. The parties involved sign on the dotted line. Why? To show I have read and understood what's in this document and I agree to be bound by the terms of this agreement. This ceremony was God's way of meeting Abram with a custom he would have known to assure him of his word. Abram asks for assurance and God gives him something that he would have known. He would have understood. In fact, if anything, this would have been the most reassuring thing that God could have done. Why? Because God is obligating himself to Abram, sealing these covenants and promises with blood. When Abram needed assurance, when he needed something to embolden his faith, when he needed to know for certain that God would make good on his promises, when he needed to know that God would bridge the gap between promise and reality, God entered into a covenant with Abram. Verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain 
that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on that nation that they serve, and afterward they shall, become, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, Abram, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they, that generation, shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So with everything set, animals laying on their sides, God put Abram in a deep sleep and he begins to speak to him. And what he does is he gives Abram a picture down the halls of history. He's telling him about things that will happen even into 400 years from now. He tells him that his offspring will eventually multiply and it will grow. And one day this people will become sojourners in a land outside of the promised land. And they will become servants afflicted for 400 years. But after the time has passed, God will bring judgment on their masters and they will emerge as a free people with great possessions. If you know the storyline of the Bible, you know he's telling him about what's going to happen in the book of Exodus. Genesis, Exodus. It's literally what happens next. And he's giving Abram a foresight of what's going to happen down the halls of history. And here's what's really cool. The very first people who are reading the book of Genesis are the children of the people who've been delivered out of Egypt, okay? They are receiving the book of Genesis on the cusp of entering into this promised land. And as they read this, they're reminded that history is not left to chance nor determined by fate, that all of history is in God's hand. And they're hearing Everything that the Lord said to Abram had come to pass. They're learning, oh my goodness, our forefather Abram was told about all these events that we've seen come to pass. He told Abram 400 years ago that our people would be enslaved in Egypt. He told Abram 400 years ago that God would bring a deliverer named Moses. He told Abram 400 years ago that he would uh, uh, conquer the Egyptians and send them out with great possessions. And guess what happened as they left Egypt? The people of Egypt gave them great possessions. When they left Egypt, they weren't empty-handed slaves anymore. They were free people with great possessions. And he told them that they would enter into the promised land. And this generation reading this is looking out on a cliff at the promised land. What would that do to their faith? God predicted this, saw this 400 years ago and told our forefather Abram, don't you think it would have emboldened their faith to say, all that God has told us and promised us now will come to pass. Do you see it, church? They have an opportunity to believe God's word and trust that it too will come to pass. To pass. Friends, God's past faithfulness should put steel in our backs to believe his word even when your circumstances tell you otherwise now look what happens next when the sun had gone down and it was dark behold a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces remember the animals on that day the lord made a covenant with abram saying to your offspring i give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river Euphrates. So what happens is, is a smoking pot and a flaming torch pass down this aisle of death. Now, again, keep in mind who's reading this. 
It's that promised land generation. They've grown up as children wandering in the wilderness. And you know what led them by day and what led them by night? A pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. And now we're seeing that this smoking fire pot and a flaming torch pass down this aisle of death. These are recognizable symbols of God. While it seems odd to us, the people first reading this would have said, wait a minute. That's God passing down the aisle of death. They immediately know it's the Lord walking down the aisle. Now, don't miss this. This is what's remarkable. This is the the, the plot twist. Because if you're reading this for the first time, you would expect who to walk down the aisle of death. It's supposed to be Abram walking down the aisle of death, saying, let it be to me. If I am not loyal to you, but who walks down the aisle? God does. Normally, the lesser party walks down the aisle and the curses for failure are assumed by the subjects. If they fail in their covenantal obligations, they bear the curse. It's the lesser party taking the oath saying, let it be done to me if I fail to keep my obligations. But here, what's Abram doing? He's fast asleep. And it's God who walks down the aisle of death. The fact that God and God alone walks down the aisle of death shows that the promise of the covenant depends on God and God alone. And what's more is it tells us that God is willing to bear the curse for our covenant failure. God takes full responsibility to see his covenant through to the end. Now, when we're reading this, we often clean up these scenes more than they are. This is not a clean scene. Imagine how much blood is on the ground from these animals bleeding out. Imagine this aisle. It's a bloody scene. The ground would have been wet and sloshed with blood. And here we have God sloshing down the aisle of death, signifying that he will put his blood on the line. He will bear the curses of covenant failure. Friends, don't you see? This is the gospel in the Old Testament. This is the God of covenant foreshadowing the day when God himself would take on flesh and walk down the aisle of death to ensure his covenant is fulfilled. See, the gospel is not about what you and I do, but what God does. That is the fundamental and repeating storyline of the Bible. It's about what God does for us that we could never do for ourselves. Jesus is the one who both perfectly keeps every detail of the covenant. He is the perfectly righteous one who lives a life we could never live. And at the same time, he is the one who walks down the aisle of death. To bear the curse for you and me. This is the constant refrain of the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, 
cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. I could keep going on. Christ has both secured the blessing of the covenant and endured the curse of the covenant so that we, through faith, might become heirs, partakers, sons and daughters of the covenant. Friends, there is a gap between the promises of God and our current reality. But God has bridged that gap in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And it's a covenant and it's a bridge that is sealed and guaranteed by the blood of Christ. Christ is our assurance, Christ is our guarantee, and Christ is our hope. Friends, the way of religion, the way of self-salvation says that you're the one who has to walk down the aisle of death. You bear the responsibility of fulfilling every obligation. And if you fail, which you inevitably will, you will bear the curse of failure. But the gospel says Christ walked down the aisle of death for you and me. He bore the curse of the covenant. He is that bridge that connects the promises of God to reality so that salvation is found in Christ by faith alone. Our salvation is secured because it was Christ who was torn apart to pay for our sins. It was his perfect holiness that was credited to us so that all we must do is simply in faith believe. That's how Abram was saved. That's how we are saved. Let's pray.